0: Uh, on the church, today we come to the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that our holy, loving creator confronted human hostility and rebellion. Uh, His own chosen freedom dictated to him, and his faithfulness urged him to become our holy, loving redeemer and restorer. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. It is through his one and only son that God's one and only plan of salvation is implemented. So Peter announced, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And Jesus himself taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The gospel is the essential message of the church. passage uh, this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd like to read along with me. Verses 1 through 8. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so grateful to have your gospel, to have that special message written to us uh, by you in Christ. We're so grateful to know this reality, this truth, that uh, it can all be boiled down to that, Lord, that uh, you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, for saving us through Jesus and for giving us this message that we can share with the world Thank you, Father. Be with us as we think about these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, Paul uh, writes this letter to the 1st Corinthians. I, I like to call the 1st Corinthians the naughty church. And uh, Paul, I think, would uh, agree. He writes this letter because things have gotten crazy out of hand in the Corinthian church. There's jealousy and pride in spiritual gifts. It's like spiritual gifts are meant to edify and to build up the church, right? The things the church needs to accomplish their ends. And what what the the Corinthians are doing is that they're fighting over those very things. It's like, boo, you know? Dudes, dudettes, what's going on? So jealousy and pride in spiritual gifts. There's also disunity. They've forgotten that they are one in Christ, that Jesus is the reason that they exist, that they all are uh, to be faithful to him. They are influenced by sin. Sin is rampant in the church, and they're not doing anything about it. They're not correcting each other. They're not encouraging one another. They're not praying for one another and confessing their sins. They're just uh, living like pagans, evidently. And In addition, there are doctrinal problems. Paul is so concerned with this, that he's like saying to them, you know, remember the gospel. The gospel made you who you are. If you don't believe that you are new in Christ, then your faith has no strength to it. It doesn't exist. It's all in vain. You're saying you're one thing, but you behave like you're another. So Paul starts out in verse 1 of this passage. He says, I remind you, brothers and sisters... It's a mild rebuke of the gospel that I preached to you. They had received it, you see, but they didn't fully understand it evidently. And Paul's making this point because uh, it's not very long into the establishment of this church and they're behaving like the gospel didn't come to them, like Christ didn't save them from their sins, that the Holy Spirit has not transformed them into this body of Christ, the people of God, temple of the Holy Spirit. So... Paul is saying, look, you know, you've made this profession, and you're not living by it. So clearly, something is out of whack. Something is haywire here. He says, you have received it, but you don't understand. Through the thing by which you are saved. That's the second plural president, present middle indicative. <laughs> Blah. Yeah, i have to sit down after that. Yeah. <laughs> But it refers to the idea that uh, that their salvation has this moment in history, right? uh, It has that moment when they first believed, and then it continues to unfold for them. The story of their salvation, their sanctification, their their standing up to temptation, their their being Christians, right? He says he's reminding them of that process that, that once and for all, and the progressive sense of the gospel. He says, we do not exhaust the meaning of salvation by our experiences when we first believe. Salvation goes on from strength to strength, and from glory to glory. So something's happened to the Corinthian church. They're off the track. The wheels have come off, so to speak. He urges them to hold fast to what they first believed. These two expressions here are cutting. The first... Paul reproves their carelessness or their fickleness because the sudden fall is evidence that they never understood what had been delivered to them in the first place or that their knowledge had been sort of loose and floating. They're not really uh, in their hearts. They aren't really convinced of what they believe. Uh, And that's the proof of that is that it vanished so quickly among them. The second He warns them that they had needlessly and uselessly professed allegiance to Christ. If it's true that everything is gone, right, that they're not even trying, they're not even being Christians, they're not listening to the commands of the Lord, they have not experienced that transformation of the heart, then what they're professing is useless. It will bring them nothing. If people profess to believe the gospel but have not given due consideration to what that implies and what it demands, they do not really trust Christ. They haven't given themselves to Jesus. Their belief is groundless and empty, and they lack saving faith. Paul is talking here about the kerygma, the the message, the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes key to the idea of what a church is. Yeah, we, we have these names. We're called the, the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. That, that's all true, and, and we do. We cling to the idea that Scripture, the word of God, is super important. So we believe in preaching it and teaching it. So it's not just, it's not just uh, uh, the, the things we do in the service, the liturgy, etc., uh, or even the, the regularity with which we get together. But it is the reality of who Jesus is and who he has called us to be. That's the important thing. So we read his word because that is what he says to us. We enjoy that relationship with him. Right. And we, we put together our understanding of who God is from that scripture. Right. We, we have a, a systemic understanding, if you will... By reading God's word, we get the whole picture of God's revelation to us. and So we understand more and more. We seek that out. We love to hear it. We enjoy uh, having that. And finally, uh, at least at this point, the, the gospel becomes the, 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 the message itself. Jesus Christ, he is the message. And if we lose that, if we lose our understanding of it, if we don't pay any attention to it anymore, we try to water it down and make it into something else, then our profession of being a church is, means nothing. We are nothing without Jesus, without that foundation. We are vain in our understanding. So Paul, after a, a mild rebuke, Brings them to the gospel. What is the gospel? What is that, that nut that they must uh, own completely? He gives them an early summary of the church's traditional teaching. But Paul is not giving views that he made up himself, uh, as some modern scholars maintain. He is simply passing on what he has received, literally. From that moment uh, on the road to Damascus... He began to receive information directly from God. right? And then after that, he received teaching and discipleship from the church in Antioch. He was there for three years, undergoing this this, uh, renaissance, this reformation, uh, this new life as he gave himself more and more. And as more and more reading scripture in the light of the reality of Jesus Christ, it began to make more sense to him. Right? And, and the, all the dots started to connect for Paul. Imagine the revelation, the excitement, the, the passion that he experienced in that journey of three years, preparing him to be the Paul we read about in these pages. Right? What a transformation. So Paul is saying, look, what's happened to me, I want to have happened to you folks. Right now you seem to have lost the whole point. So I'm going to bring you back to Jesus. I'm going to bring you back to that moment. And so he shares with them once again what is of first importance for God's people. Without this message, we do not have the essential Christian position. So he shares with them the truth that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. So that's what Jesus maintains the Bible is. It's all about him. So if we're, we go to Scripture and read and learn and are ministered to by God's Holy Spirit in God's Word, then we will come to the recognition that Christ's death was essential, that it wouldn't work without it. It had to happen. And God, in his merciful, loving ways, brought it about for our sakes and for his glory. So Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. It is an atoning death, Right? It's to satisfy God's demand for justice. It's a requirement that bridges the chasm of sin. It reconciles the sinner to the Savior. If that doesn't happen, it doesn't work. We can only die for our own sins, and when that happens, we are destroyed. Only God could come and die for someone else's sins. The perfect lamb, the lamb without blemish, offered up for the sins of the world. Only Jesus could do that. The Gospel also tells us that he was buried. You know, we, we hop over that very often in the Apostles' Creed. It almost seems like, you know, it's superfluous. Well, yeah, he's dead. Of course you'd bury him, right? Well, it's important that Scripture is saying that he died. He actually died. He didn't swoon. He wasn't faking it. This wasn't all made up, right? Jesus died for our sins, and he was dead. He suffered a punishment meant for us. And on the third day, once again, in accordance with Scripture, this was all told to us beforehand, right? So when we saw it, we would realize it and see it as the truth. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Jesus overcame sin and death. The Father accepts Jesus' work as sufficient for the salvation of humankind and the reconciliation of sinners. We are counted as pure and perfect, obedient children because of what Jesus did. And Jesus is raised from the dead as an affirmation of the effectiveness of Christ's work. Now we are able to live according to God's desire for us. We undergo a transformation. We go from being dead to being alive, being children of darkness to being children of light. We are now the people of God in truth, not a hoped-for thing. We are there in Christ. If God can change a sin-laden dead Jesus into an eternally glorious living King Jesus then he can change us from dead in our sins to life in obedience eternally. And that's the gospel. We are changed forever by Jesus. If you believe that and live according to what God desires for you, then you are a Christian and we are the church. Not only that, but after these lessons, right, God doesn't want to keep it a secret, so Jesus goes and he shows himself to the people. It's like uh, on the road to Emmaus, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Why didn't Jesus reveal himself at the first? Well, I think it's like this. You know, Jesus comes and unbeknownst to these two guys, he tells them the story from Scripture. Shows them from Moses through the prophets that the Scriptures are about Jesus. That he had to die for our sins, that he had to be buried, that he had to be raised from the dead. He had to become our king forever, our Savior and Lord. right? And he taught that to these two men on the way to Emmaus. And when the story was all done, and they were sitting there, most likely going, hmm, I don't know. That was the moment when he revealed himself, right? Here's the story, and here I am standing before you proof of the pudding proof that Jesus is who he says he is so in this passage paul is saying to these corinthians look jesus died for our sins he was dead he was buried he rose from the dead he invites us by faith to come into fellowship with his father something that we could not do before he died but now we can I write of his resurrection. And to prove it, I show myself to you, to these messengers, to these apostles who will carry the message to us. He shows himself to Cephas, uh, Peter's uh, Greek name, Cephas, Simon Peter, we know him as. And then to the 12, even though it's just 11, but they were called the 12, right? Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters, 500 brothers and sisters. Then he appeared to James, his own brother, or half-brother. Then to all the apostles, including the women who saw him at the tomb. And last of all, to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. It's, it's, it's like the, the apostle Paul was the one who, who got drafted. All the others were invited, right? All the others were invited, but Paul was drafted on the road to uh, Damascus. Why do you assault me, Paul? You know, who's speaking to me? Paul says, it is I, Jesus, whom you persecute. <laughs> right? <laughs> Mind-blowing. Paul says, you know, if, you, if you had gone through with what, what I have gone through, you, would, you wouldn't be doing the, what you're doing. You wouldn't be living the way you are living, O Corinthians. You would shape up, right? The glory that is God has been bestowed upon you. Jesus died for your sins. Get it together. This marks you as different from the rest of the world. You are a people ordained for eternity. Shape up. Now, the upshot of all of this is there is but one gospel, one reality, whoever might preach it. And we hear it from you know, not only the apostles, but, for instance, from my mom and dad. My mom and dad shared the gospel with me. And, and you have a similar story. Me may have read it in the Bible, but you heard it from someone you trusted, someone who loved you and whom you, you love back. Whoever we hear it from, it's one gospel. It has the power of the Holy Spirit and of the truth, of the will of God behind it. And it overcomes sin and death. It plucks us from the gutter, from the overwhelming flood, and sets us on the rock. One reality. Paul has stressed that he received the gospel. He did not originate it. He has listed some of the more important points in the apostolic message, in particular the strong evidence for the resurrection, which is the proof. That's the proof. Now he is able to say that that this is the common message of preachers. Christ and him crucified, he says. He's reminding the Corinthians that what he has shared with them, what they have received, although maybe not understanding the full implications of it, they're learning that now. We preach and continue to preach the gospel, Paul says, the authentic gospel that all the apostles preach and make their habit to proclaim This is what you believe, Paul says to the Corinthians. This is the basis of their faith. It was this message and not another that they believed when they became Christians. Anything else is innovation. Paul dissuades them from making things up, making a new gospel. Return to what you first knew and loved, return to the joy of God's salvation. Paul defends the gospel. So Paul views the gospel as centering upon Jesus Christ and what God has done through him. We must not think, however, possibly like the Corinthians thought, that these were merely facts to to learn and to memorize, become liturgical, if you will, with no real heart behind them. Not that liturgy is that way, but it can be that way sometimes. So the Corinthians are not to do that. They are to understand the the facts as representing reality. This stuff happened. God has done this. Jesus is raised. You believe in him. Change your ways. Be transformed. Be like the Philippian jailer, for instance, from Acts 16. You know, here was a guy who was just living his life. He got these charges. Arrested. You know, brought to the jail and put in there to stand trial the next day, which was always the way the Romans did it. You know, you weren't in jail a long time. You would be there until you were tried, and then you would go off to the sentence, whether it was death or slavery or salt mines or whatever. You would wait for that moment. So the jailer has these guys, right? And uh, the the whole church, as small as it was, was praying for them, right? And uh, all of a sudden, there's an earthquake and the, and the jail doors fly open. The jailer sees this, and immediately he knows, being a good Roman uh, employee, he knows that if he loses his charge, what was going to happen to the prisoners will happen to him. So the first thing he does is try to kill himself. Because he knows whatever the Romans have in store for him will be less pleasant than suicide. But as he does that, the apostles say, wait, don't. You know, we're all still here. <laughs> Guy's mind is blown. So he, you know, he just becomes immediately a changed man, grateful for what has happened. So he invites everyone home. Right? So the jail is can't hold you anymore. Come to my house. You know, stay with me. And so they go and they have supper and they fellowship, and the apostles explain to him the gospel. And now he knows why. He knows the why. For the salvation in the jail. He knows the why for the, for the earthquake. He knows the why for the jail doors flying open. He knows the why. He felt hospitable with those guys, those prisoners. Someone he would not ordinarily even care about. And he comes to Christ in that moment. You think that guy wasn't changed forever? Paul says, be like that jailer. Be like him. Be changed. Be transformed. Accept the gift from God through Jesus Christ. Do not tarry. Jesus died, but he died for our sins. Nor is the resurrection of Jesus an isolated event. It is the beginning of the general resurrection of all believers. Furthermore, the fact of coming judgment pertains to everyone. We all will be evaluated on the basis of our personal attitude toward and response to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The glorious thing about this, this message that we have, this kerygma that we have is we can share it with everyone because it cuts across all racial, social, economic and educational barriers. But it also spans the centuries of time. It's a message that does not become obsolete. It's the church's sacred trust today. The good news which the church offers to the world brings hope. And what else brings hope today? What else brings hope like this? I offer up there's nothing. There ain't nothing that offers this kind of hope. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is hope, and it comes to fulfillment when we believe and obey the gospel. Because the gospel has been, is, and will always be the way to salvation, the only way to salvation. And the church must persevere in it at all costs. This is our message. This is what makes us who we are. Let us pray.